for watching this week. This week in FCPA, episode 88 for the week ending February 2, 2018, the birthday edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, including the Justice Department escalation of the inquiry on global sports corruption, the review by Jeff Kaplan on his Conflicts of Interest blog of a new way to look at the Wells Fargo scandal. We consider the COSO framework and its new chairman and potential additional guidance around internal controls and ERM. We take a look at Jonathan Marks' exploration of whether the roles of the general counsel and chief compliance officer should be split on his board and fraud blog. We take a look at Sam Rubenfeld's article in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report about the U.S. becoming the second largest home of tax havens and how that directly has impacted the Houston real estate economy. We consider an article by Ben D. Pietro, also from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report, about whether a company should use a CEO as a point spokesperson during a crisis. Finally, our last article is a review of a uh, speech by David Green or a presentation by David Green where he called on the UK Defense Bar to embrace artificial intelligence and said the authorities, such as the Serious Fraud Office, will use newly enacted unexplained wealth orders and corruption cases uh, around these. We then move to the discussion of the presale of my latest book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, which will be published in April of 2018. Jonathan Marks and I are, uh, or I'm uh, putting on another uh, compliance masterclass hosted by Jonathan Marks at Markham LLP. It's February 12 and 11, excuse me, 12 and 13 in Markham's offices in Florida. Finally, uh, I announced the upcoming podcast series that I am premiering next week, Countdown to GDPR with Jonathan Armstrong. It's a monthly series for the U.S. compliance practitioner about how to prepare for the upcoming go live of GDPR. We conclude by a discussion of our Super Bowl picks and why. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 88 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending February 2, 2018, my mother's birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. The number six or number one edition. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and cohort, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. And I've got birthdays on my side, too. Millie and Michaela turned 10 on February 3rd, uh, a whole decade of M&Ms. And then my mom's birthday is February 4th, which is Super Bowl Sunday this year. Oh, wow. So we've got a plethora of birthdays to celebrate. Well, Jay, uh, we had a pretty interesting week in the compliance and ethics world, so uh, why don't we hop right into it uh, with a report by the New York Times and uh, picked up by, by several, including our own Andy Spaulding on the FCPA blog, that the U.S. Justice Department is escalating its inquiry on global sports corruption. Obviously, the DOJ started with the uh, FIFA scandal of 2015, but apparently subpoenas were delivered back in January for documents, testimony, and financial records around the uh, USOC, the 2021 World Track and Field Championships, which are going to be held in Eugene, Oregon, the 2000, excuse me, the 2028 Olympics, uh, which have been awarded to Los Angeles, and uh, other uh, sporting entities and events. 
it really expands out this look at global sports. And I think, uh, Jay, um, certainly we can talk about this in the context of Larry Nasser and the uh, U.S. Uh, gymnastics and Michigan State scandals around that. But uh, when you start looking at the monies that are spent around the IOC, FIFA, and other international organizations, it becomes uh, it really becomes just phenomenal. The uh, Olympics have had their own issues. Certainly, the uh, Salt Lake City Olympics, uh, there was a wide-ranging scandal there, and the uh, U.S. or excuse me, the International Olympic Committee, the track and field championships awarded to Eugene, Oregon, essentially on a no-bid basis. Obviously, we, we had FIFA. We continue to have FIFA, and we will always have FIFA. Uh, just like uh, we'll always have Paris, I guess we'll always have FIFA. But um, <laughs> the the money that's involved here and the um, incestuous relationships at the top between those who are awarding franchises, awarding or re- rather awarding of games, and those who are bidding on them is something that uh, I think when you start taking a look at it and when you overlay the just billions of dollars that are spent by uh, public companies, either for sponsorships, for broadcasting rights, uh, or others to be associated with those events, uh, the money itself, the amount of money itself that flows through these is, is just startling and it doesn't surprise me. But it's going to be a very painful, I think, uh, experience for many of these sporting organizations because compliance and ethics, it's not that they was not in the front of their minds. It, it wasn't an existing part of their minds. Uh, certainly, uh, doping has been a part of uh, the Olympic movement and um, other sporting events for multiple years now, and we've had multiple doping scandals. But this financial scandal and the, the information unearthed in FIFA, I think uh, if you are a business that has been a sponsor, that uh, has tried to be a sponsor or is considering being a sponsor. You need to look at your compliance program uh, very carefully. You need to see who your third parties are. You need to see who you're doing business with. You need to see what the relationship is with any of the national officials who've been voting on uh, any of these sponsorships. You need to see your gifts, travel, and entertainment. You need to go through the full panoply of uh, these issues because it appears the uh, Department of Justice has really ramped up its uh, investigation around um, corruption. Now, why do you think this um, has focused on EDNY? What, what do you think uh, brings them into the nexus here? Is it just because they're experienced with FIFA, or do you see other reasons why they're kind of being the uh, sports policemen for the globe? Well, I would say really it's uh, probably around FIFA and their experience in dealing with FIFA. Uh, obviously, um, New York is headquartered to many national and international organizations, so that does, doesn't surprise me. Uh, either because of the, the location of many of these, uh, if not their national international headquarters, certainly their U.S. national headquarters. But the uh, experience they had in FIFA, the investigations they went through following the money, uh, getting cooperating witnesses, and then flipping uh, people who became defendants is uh, uh, well within their experience from the organized crime realm. That's where most organized crime, crime cases are brought in the Eastern District of New York. And now we have these, which are essentially much just broader, uh, sc- truly international in scope organizations. And so when the uh, uh, context of FIFA certainly turned out to be uh, corrupt up and down, literally across the globe. So if I'm an advertiser and I have participated in one of these global events, and now you're suggesting I look into the relationships with 
third parties and contracts, uh, does that suddenly mean that as an advertiser I might open myself up to some type of shareholder litigation? Well, Jay, shareholder litigation is generally a follow-on to a uh, corruption or uh, financial restatement or books and records, internal controls violation, either civil or criminal penalty. That's something that certainly could happen, but it's not going to be a primary uh, effect. The primary effect would be the criminal violations or potential criminal violations, I should say, in any criminal investigation. If the SEC or DOJ closes its, its books, uh, much like it did this week with Cobalt here in Houston, uh, then the likelihood of a successful shareholder action is much less. From uh, Jeff Kaplan's Conflict of Interest blog, and he decides to uh, take a look at a case study that was written um, about the Wells Fargo incident. And um, Ethical Systems has published this case study, which is called Under Pressure, Wells Fargo Misconduct, Leadership, and Culture. And uh, basically, um, Jeff starts off with a story about the most satisfying grade that he got in college, and it wasn't an A or it wasn't a B, but it was a C minus over an F. And the reason why he considered it his best grade, uh, even though it wasn't his highest, is that he learned it by ignoring the professor's instructions about the assignment. And learning to follow instructions, even in a costly way, was more valuable to him than doing any of the other classes. So this case study takes a look at four specific areas where there were trouble, where trouble was brewing at Wells Fargo. Uh, the first one is the incentives, and that some branch and district managers considered only sales for performance ratings, and hence many people were selling more than their colleagues uh, considered this prerogative, and failing to do so meant they would be penalized. I took a look at the leadership again and how that sales was above all else. Uh, employee selection systems, even before new hires joined the bank, they were socialized to think that winning against competitors at any cost was a priority. And the last uh, attribute he looked at were informal systems where decentralization encouraged independence and self-reliance, which on one hand had benefits to financial performance, but on the other hand likely few unethical behavior. So he thinks that a case study like this, although it's um, kind of long at 23 pages, he suggests that this would be something that you could tailor to the industry that you're in and it would be a great uh, you know, company-specific version that could be created for your employees to uh, take a look at potential conflict of interest. So I, I think uh, it should prove uh, quite an interesting read and a good tool to use in your organization. So, Jay, next up, we found that the COSO uh, organization appointed a new chair and that they may consider some internal control guidance. So, Tammy Whitehouse, my colleague uh, over at Compliance Report, uh, excuse me, Compliance Week, reported that Paul Sobel, currently the vice president and chief audit executive at Georgia Pacific, is beginning a three-year term to succeed retiring uh, chairperson uh, Robert Hurth. Sobel plans to retain his position at Georgia Pacific while taking the reins at COSO, which is, uh, of course, formally known as the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations of the Treadway Commission. COSO itself is a collaborative think tank that's authored the Internal Controls Integrated Framework, the most widely utilized tool for achieving compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley. 
Sobel's near-term priority in the, as the incoming chair is to prom- promote the adoption of the board's recently updated enterprise risk management framework, and noting while it's relatively new, uh, it's something that uh, most organizations need to have a better understanding of the key concepts. What interested me, Jay, was that COSO is also developing some additional guidance to support not only the updated uh, ERM framework, but also the internal controls framework focused primarily on examples that help organizations understand how the frameworks are to be applied in real situations. Publishing, publishing these examples with the framework might have made the document too, too unwieldy, but giving some examples from different industries can help people relate to these. So uh, I'm a big fan of the COSO framework, as you know, and I, I try to talk about it and evangelize about it in my overall role as the compliance evangelist. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see Bob Hearth has been a great cheerleader and uh, leader and indeed evangelist for COSO. And I hope Paul Sobel continues, continues this role and having someone who can uh, put out some examples, I think, will uh, will help us go forward. Great. And um, did uh, you and Matt Kelly do anything about this yet, or is this going to be uh, one of your in- upcoming Into the Weeds? I think we'll probably go. Uh, we did an original, excuse me, we done an initial one, um, program on the uh, ERM framework, and we promised that we would uh, take a deep dive into it uh, and then go into the weeds, but we haven't gotten there yet. Great. So uh, we've got a new contributor who continues to bat a thousand. What is on Jonathan Mark's mind uh, between CCOs and GCs? Well, he took a really thoughtful look at um, the roles the different roles of a general counsel and chief compliance officer within an organization. And it was, uh, I thought, a really good way to think about whether you should combine these two roles into one person because he laid out the differences in uh, really qualitatively and quantitatively what each person must do uh, in their corporate functions. So, for instance, the general counsel defends a client i.e. the corporation, gives legal advice on how to comply, maintain business objectives, but is uh, duty-bound under each state's rule of ethics to zealously represent their client, once again, i.e. the company. The chief compliance officer has a different focus who finds, fix, and prevents future problems, protects whistleblowers, works in the management function, incorporates, obviously, some legal considerations into compliance, but it's really more to influence process. Uh, to translate legal advice into management action. Obviously, pre- the prevent prong is important, but the um, remediate prong may be the most important. So uh, some of the um, conflicting obligations that at least Jonathan sees is that the uh, around privilege, that a chief compliance officer may be more in touch with employees and more likely to receive information. The privilege uh, cannot, uh, rather, could be an issue if the general counsel is not involved. Uh, um, material violations, the SEC uh, requires uh, to escalate certain material violations, violations to a chief legal officer. And the defensive nature and defensive role of a general counsel may squash the transparency required to design a preventative compliance program if the chief compliance officer uh uh, the independent uh, or the independent reporting is not uh, present. So it was a really interesting way to think about uh, some of the um, issues of intertwining those two. That's something that is an ongoing debate, although, frankly, Jay, in the 2017 
FCPA, uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. I thought the uh, Department of Justice went right up to the very tiptoe of the line of saying that these roles should be split. They should not be within one person. They didn't say that directly, but I thought it came as close as they ever have to saying that. So uh, we're going to have to see uh, where that might go. But Jonathan really laid out, I think, uh, as well as uh, I've seen someone do it, the two different functions, how organizations review, uh, excuse me, view those functions, and what it may all mean going forward. Good stuff. Uh, next up, we have an article from uh, Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance Journal uh, from our good friend Samuel Rubenfeld. And uh, drum roll, please. The U.S. has become the world's second biggest tax haven. We're number and, two. Uh, we're number two. We're, we're number two. We're number two. <laughs> so uh, this is based on the Financial Secrecy Index, and it is estimated that between 21 and $32 trillion uh, are stashed away in secret jurisdiction. And this has been a, a steady uptick for the U.S. back in 2013. We were number six, 2015, number three, and 2018 were number two. And who do you think still is reigning champ at number one, Tom? Um, British Virgin Islands? No, to think about chocolates and fine precision watches. And cuckoo birds, Switzerland. There you go, Switzerland. So um, one of the interesting... Uh, remarks here in the article was that uh, it was Gary Kalman, executive director of the FACT Coalition, said that the opioid crisis and human tra trafficking are both on the rise with the help of anonymous shell companies to launder proceeds. So uh, uh, this, I guess, is not surprising, and I'm wondering, uh, with the new tax laws and the influx of uh, revenue that many U.S. companies have been keeping offshores to evade paying taxes, does that also lead to a more lax uh, uh, monetary system here where uh, money can be secreted away? Well, I think that's certainly a part of, uh, the or at least the desires of certain persons in the administration. But, Jay, I'd like to maybe take this a little bit different direction because I was fairly well stunned uh, when I was reading the uh, Houston Chronicle this morning. Uh, on the front page, above the fold, was the following story. Suit, dozens of Woodland Spring homes bought with stolen Mexican money. So the um, Mexican state of Veracruz, not even the Mexican government, filed civil suits this week alleging that dozens of Houston-area properties were bought with millions of dollars of stolen money by the state's now-jailed former governor. And really, Jay, that speaks directly to... Uh, this uh, we're number two issue, which is that stolen money, money stolen by uh, foreign officials, government officials outside the United States is being laundered in the United States to buy real estate. Uh, Houston's been identified as a key hub. Miami's been identified. Certainly New York is well known uh, for the, at least the allegations of that. So, but now we have this really driven down into a location such as Houston, which you probably would not think of as a major money laundering uh, empire uh, along the lines of the First Order or something even more nefarious. And a, a very prominent uh, uh, civil litigator here, Tony Busby, has uh, been retained to file suit, and they believe there's upwards of uh, $100 million 
that was laundered into the uh, Houston real estate market uh, from its uh, uh, the state of Veracruz, not the country of Mexico, but the state of uh, Veracruz. And uh, I've not really seen states, and, and I have to emphasize the state nature or the province of Veracruz, not the Mexican government. So um, it's rather unusual for a foreign government to uh, hire a private attorney to attempt to recoup allegedly stolen assets through civil lawsuits, but it's even uh, almost non-existent for a state uh, to do so in uh, tracing these assets. So I thought it was a really prescient article, uh, given what uh, Sam reported on. is something that hopefully, hopefully our Congress will start to address because the um, money laundering haven uh, that we have become if we're going to uh, attack other comp- countries and try to get them to scale back their money launderingness, if that's the right phrase, I think we have to do a little bit better job in leading the way. Uh, this is not a case of leading from behind. This is a case of uh, leading while going in the opposite direction. And if we're going to prosecute people who live in uh, known la- money laundering jurisdictions, I think the United States is going to have to work to, to clean that up. But even more importantly, Jay, is, as you correctly noted, the different types of crimes that are hidden through money laundering, human trafficking, uh, narcotics, uh, theft of, of purloinum of assets from uh, other companies, excuse me, countries, um, all come to bear. So, And, of course, that leads back to terrorism. Yeah, because if you can launder money, you can uh, uh, hide it till you need it, uh, and then you can use it uh, and bring it about. So uh, clearly uh, part of the effort of terrorism, I hope uh, Congress would understand that money laundering is a big part of that. And because we're number two, uh, I think we need to, to take a look at um, ourselves. Could we use some of the uh, ill-gotten gains from uh, money laundering and maybe use that to build a, a wall on our southern border? Well, the problem is uh, I'm not sure that that money belongs to the United States. I think it belongs to the countries where it's been stolen from. So there are lawsuits uh, probably to to get that money back and take it home. But I suppose since this is the state of Veracruz, we could get Veracruz to try to uh, build a wall on the other side uh, using this money. My uh, tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. Fair so uh, picking up another article from our friends at the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal, uh, Ben Pietro talks about when to use the CEO as a crisis spokesman. And he says that uh, knowing whether to deploy the CEO as its public face during a crisis is a tricky question for companies to answer. But two recent research papers say there are times when it's more advantage- advantageous to do so. Uh, One of the papers examined the use of the CEO as a chief spokesman in a crisis, and the other analyzes whether there are benefits to CEOs who try to build affinity with the various constituencies. Uh, The first paper was published in December by the Journal of International Management, and it found that the use of the CEO is more effective in places where people expect and accept differences in status in societies, also known as power dis distance orientation. So one example that they used that was in support of this um, was the decision by New Zealand-based dairy company Frontera Cooperative Group, who used their CEO, Theo Sparings, in China in 2013 to respond to a botulism scare in its whey products. 
China was Frontera's largest market, and the Chinese people rank high in terms of the power-distance relationship. So that's a situation where it works. Um, one of the, the there seems to be three questions that you need to consider when deciding whether or not to trot your CEO out. And uh, number one is, has the scope and scale of the issue been elevated to where it could adversely affect the brand trust? And that certainly existed on Frontera. Has the integrity of the executive decision maker been called into question? And finally, is the genesis of the crisis values created? So if the answer is yes to any of those questions, the CEO should be the spokesperson, Mr. Hilberg said. On the other side, when we're taking a look at the affinity, they quoted a situation back in 2007 when former Mattel CEO Robert Eckert made a video to apologize to parents after the discovery of excessive levels of lead paint in some of the toys. Mr. Eckert tried to connect with the parents by noting he was the father of four children. But unfortunately, uh, this, uh, uh, the remarks of Eckert didn't enhance the receptiveness of the audience to the company's message. So, um, you know, I think what happens is that these situations are kind of fluid. And, um, you know, to quote Richard Levick, who is always uh, an expert when it comes to crisis management, he said, the use of the CEO can be counterproductive if a crisis isn't serious. A relatively minor crisis will often be inflamed, not diffused, when the CEO is the spokesperson. So, uh, Tom, um, any other point of view you have on this? So, um, I think that CEOs need to be trained to do this because uh, I think that companies, or excuse me, customers expect that CEOs uh, will get out in front and will be the public face, uh, at least uh, for some level of reporting or uh, statements to assure the public that the company's taking this seriously. If we take a look at the uh, the BP scandal, I've forgotten the name of the uh, BP CEO at the time, but he was an absolute disaster. And he was a disaster not because he was not te technically competent or because he didn't care. It's because he said stupid things. Uh, and uh, things that um, really inflame the situation. Uh, I think the second or third week of the spill, uh, he went, uh, flew back to England to uh, engage in a yacht race. Well, do you think the people who were um, the shrimpers and uh, boaters of southern, uh, southern Louisiana who were directly impacted were uh, worried about their yacht races? At one point he said, I want my life back. Well, uh, what about all those people whose lives were destroyed? Um, that kind of tone deafness is, is something that um, you really can't have. But to be fair, uh, I don't think many CEOs had received media training. They, they may not have seen, received public training, uh, public speaking training. Um, I hope they would have, but they may not have because they didn't view that as their role. And certainly in today's social media market, a social media climate, social media complete oeuvre that uh, anything you can and, uh, can and will say will be used. Now, whether that's against you or for you uh, is open, uh, but uh, with the ubiquitousness of communications, uh, you have to anticipate or have to believe that there's a hot mic around you all the time uh, and that someone's going to record uh, what you're saying. And so you better stay on message and you better stay on point. I would say those are words to be well heated. Uh, let's go over to the pond to um, 
the Serious Fraud Office and Director David Green. And uh, what did you find in this week's GIR that was of interest? So David Green is really good about getting out and uh, talking to his constituents, uh, defense bar prosecutors uh, in the United Kingdom. And he recently gave a speech where he talked about one thing that I wanted to highlight, Jay, and that was uh, the use of artificial intelligence uh, in the compliance function. Now, he talked about it in terms of investigation of money laundering, if we could tie back to that, and something in the United Kingdom which is called an unexplained wealth order. Uh, that uh, uh, can be involved in a fin- uh, under the Financial Crimes Act. But um, the part that interested me, Jay, was that Director Green talked about AI and new technology as helping to speed up cases, but he talked about it not just in terms of the SFO using, utilizing this technology, but he talked about it in terms of the defense bar using this technology. And that, of course, means companies and compliance officers using technology to uh, speed up the investigation of cases. Um, He talked about in the Rolls-Royce case, the SFO itself used artificial intelligence to go through 30 million documents to weed out those that were legally privileged. Uh, He kind of anecdotally reported that uh, normally that would take um, 30 young barristers a a lot of time to do so, but that the SFO found that uh, AI combed through everything in a third of the time, and it was more efficient and reliable, at least on that basic search. So um, I was really interested to see that the head of the uh, Serious Fraud Office is talking about that, obviously from the enforcement perspective, Jay, but uh, that leads directly into prevent, detect, and remediate prongs that every chief compliance officer and compliance professional is aware of. And this really means that uh, even though the enforcement agencies and enforcers may lead a conversation, although in this time they may be a little bit behind the, in uh, talking about it. When they start talking about uh, utilizing that in enforcement actions, that's going to uh, bleed down into um, regular old everyday compliance. And so companies need to start thinking about using these types of tools in evaluating the data that sits literally within their companies, whether it be financial data, whether it be reporting data, whether it be uh, sales data, whether it be uh, uh, vendor data, whether it be manufacturing data, all the data that's available to you as a chief compliance officer, it's literally sitting in silos within your company that you can't figure out how to use because you don't have the resources or time to take a look at it. Uh, technology is going to give you the ability to have a line of sight down on numerous silos of data that you never previously had. So I think it was really interesting that the uh, Serious Fraud Office Director Green talked about this, and uh, it's going to really lead, uh, I think, be one of the two major topics for compliance going forward into 2018 and beyond, uh, uh, in addition to the ethical culture um, that uh, has been lacking, leading to several major corporate scandals. I think that conversation will be probably number one, but what I call ComTech, AI, or technology uh, into compliance will be number two. So I know you follow this uh, pretty closely. Are there any uh, first-mover companies out there who are starting to come up with any type of uh, overlay system that you could start uh, harvesting the – AI about different parts of your business to start to lead to proactive compliance decisions? You know, there are, Jay, but I have to uh, say that um, in March I'll be premiering a new podcast called 
innovation and compliance, and that's going to be the first episode. So let me just say, as a teaser to that first episode, I'm going to talk about uh, one of the most innovative uses of that technology in a compliance function that I'll save for that uh, premiere episode. Wow, what a perfect tee up. What else do you have for our folks out there? So, Jay, uh, I am extraordinarily pleased, and I cannot emphasize how pleased I am to announce the uh, pre-publication sale of my next book, The Compliance, The Complete Compliance Handbook, which I uh, wrote last year. It's been submitted to the publisher. Uh, Compliance Week is publishing this, and it's now available for pre-sale. It's on my uh, website. Uh, if uh, the uh, FCPA compliance report, if you want to take a look at it, it's going to be published in mid-April. If you want to get your uh, early copy now, please do so. But I'm really thrilled to uh, be able to come out with this. It uh, was really a labor of love uh, for anyone who was with me over the past uh, month or indeed the past year. And no, I went through 31 days to a more effective compliance program in January. Um, that formed the basis of that chapter, as indeed each month uh, over the past year where I took a literally a deep dive exploration into a wide variety of compliance topic, boards of directors, innovation and compliance, human resources and compliance, investigations and compliance, internal controls and compliance, written policies and procedures, uh, business ventures, and uh uh, just a, a really wide variety of topics that I took a very deep dive into. This will be the most comprehensive compliance handbook written by a compliance practitioner for compliance practitioners. So I'm really pleased to uh, to announce this and uh, can't wait till it's uh, out in print and I can hold it and wave it and uh, then we can even talk about it more. Well, congratulations. Uh, another thing up on Tom's schedule is... Uh, Tom's going to join Jonathan Marks at their next uh, Compliance Masterclass, sponsored by Markham LLP, and it will be held on February 12th and 13th at uh, Mark, Markham's offices in Miami, Florida. And uh, if you want some more information about that to, or to get a copy of the agenda or to register, uh, you can. we're going to link to it in the show notes, and you can also find that on uh, Todd's Tom's website, the FCPA Compliance Report. Uh, Tom, new podcast, what do you've got coming up for us? So in addition to innovation and compliance, Jay, I've uh, actually produced my first podcast and we'll release it next week in the following series, a countdown to GDPR with our good friend and colleague, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, literally one of the UK's top uh, data privacy, uh, data security and GDPR experts. I'm introducing a podcast to help the U.S. compliance practitioner get ready for the implementation or rather go-live date of GDPR in late May 2018. Jonathan uh, has a wealth of material that he's going to share with us. It's uh, once again going to be a rather short, direct, give you one thing that you can do per podcast. It's leading up to Jonathan is uh, coming to Houston in April, I believe April 10th, to put on a half-day workshop. So uh, we'll be publicizing that more uh, throughout the podcast and through Q1 of this year. But I really wanted to do something to get in front of the U.S. compliance practitioner what really is going to change and what you need to be doing and thinking about if you're not already doing so around GDPR. So episode one will go up uh, next week, and uh, uh, I look forward to uh, being able to work with Jonathan on this. Yeah, and just to echo the importance, um, last week in Irvine there was a, a session uh, completely completely devoted to GDPR, and uh, we had somebody there from Intuit, 
and then we also had somebody there from um, outside counsel. So again, it, it's on everything, everybody's mind with that uh, late May uh, start date. So what else is on your and my mind is the Super Bowl. What are your thoughts? So Jay, I uh, I didn't uh, didn't get the picture taken, but I put all five of my uh, replica Super Bowl trophies on uh, the breakfast table, along with my three signed Tom Brady helmets uh, to take a picture and send to you to help you uh, maybe get a little fired up for uh, Super Bowl this weekend. And obviously, uh, New England has five; they're going for number six. Philly has none, and they're going for number one. Uh, the, uh, the lead up to the game uh, has been interesting because um, the Patriots are clearly the favorite, but I don't think anyone's counting Philadelphia out. And they're giving them a very good chance. They've talked about the improvement of Nick Foles since he became the starter in early December or I guess mid December, but how his first couple of games he was uh, downright horrible. But over the last couple of games, culminating with uh, the Eagles' win over the uh, Vikings, was uh, just outstanding. Tom Brady, of course, is Tom Brady. In my mind, the uh, the greatest, uh, not just greatest living NFL quarterback, but the greatest NFL quarterback. And if he gets, uh, I don't know what you can say about, you can't say one for the thumb in 81, but you can say on your second hand, of, when you're on your second hand of uh, Oh, Super Bowl rings, it speaks very well for you, and uh, he's the only one that would move over to that second hand So, um, and doing it at age 40. Um, still amazing. So uh, I think it's going to be a great game. I think it'll be competitive. The, uh, the Belichick is genius talk. Uh, I'm a little ambivalent on, but he is. I mean, he, he is. And he, uh, he knows football, he loves football, and that may be all he does, but uh, he does that very well. So uh, I, of course, uh, am pulling for the Patriots uh, and my main man, Tom Brady, uh, U of M grads. But uh, I also am um, not in Las Vegas, so I can't put a bet down. But uh, I'm going to take the Patriots on this one. Uh, And you're uh, taking them straight up or with the four and a half point spread? So uh, I'm actually taking it uh, straight up because my prediction is uh, 28-17 Patriots. 28-17. 28-17. I was thinking more like 24-20, to 20, but um, I did a little number crunching here, and uh, the average margin of victory for the Pats in their five Super Bowl wins is 3.7 points. Right. So that's a, a field goal and a smidge. And uh, the over-under here is 48.5 in, in – uh, Five, let's see, wait, one, two, three, and four of their five victories, they went over. And the one time they were under, which is interesting, was the Eagles, and that the total amount of points scored was 39. So um, I do think the, the Eagles have a, a pretty good defense. Um, I think it's going to end up the way the Pats always play. They play a very uh, close game, and I think whoever gets that ball last in the fourth quarter or in overtime is going to win. Uh, I do not see them falling as far behind as they did against Atlanta, but I think the one thing that can be guaranteed with a, a New England Super Bowl appearance, with the exception of the times they got thrashed by De Bears in '86, and when uh, they didn't really 
play so well at Green Bay against Green Bay. But I think the last uh, six, five times we've seen them in the Super Bowl, it's always an exciting game and it's down to the wire. So um, I like them, and uh, I guess I like them by four points, which is uh, just below the, uh, the spread. Well, there. Uh, any prediction for MVP number? What would it be? The fifth one for Brady if he gets it, or is it sixth? So I'd have to say on my prop bet, I would pick Brady um, because um, he's going to be the one throwing it. Even if uh, Houstonian Danny Amendola catches several, uh, as uh, Houstonian Danny Amendola would be well received, he's still not my main man, Tom Brady, and it, he probably's not getting tired of going back to Disneyland. So. Um, uh, when he's the star of the team, it revolves around him, uh, not because of his star quality power, although he does have some of that. What he has is he has the ability to read defenses and react uh, better than anyone certainly uh, I can think of. There's some very, very good quarterbacks, some very, very good throwers, some very, very good passers. But Brady's ability to break down a defense within a two- or three-second view before he snaps the ball and then make adjustments, make reads and then adjustments um, in the three to five seconds he has to throw the ball, I really think are uh, uh, as well as any other quarterback's ever done, Jay. So that means he's he's a bit more than a system quarterback? You know, I would uh, – what's the right word? Manages the game? Yeah. A bit more than well, that. Well, he, he, he managed the game against St. Louis, I think, when they won that Super Bowl. But uh, uh, he's, he's made a lot of progress in the last 18 years, I would say. You know, that was 18 years ago. So, uh, yes, he's made a lot of progress. So, um, in terms, I guess we should probably call this the birthday edition, huh? Because yeah. your mom and my mom and the girls. Yeah. So, um, you want to take us home? So on behalf of Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, this is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Uh, We hope you have enjoyed uh, this week in FCPA, episode 88 for the week ending, February 2, 2018, the remonikered birthday edition. Thanks for Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA for the week ending February 2, 2018. As always... Jay and I would be happy to take your questions. You can reach Jay Rosen at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly podcast in compliance, wrapping things up for the week. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we review the Week in FCPA Compliance and Ethics. The FC, this Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.